Hi, everybody. Welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. All right, let's take a second and just recall one of the diagrams that we've been working with here. You have a signifier that represents a subject for another signifier. And then we have a series of encompassing iterations of that same formula. You know the diagram I'm talking about. You have S1 over barred subject with an arrow pointing at S2, and then you've got that entire topology encompassed in a rectangle that doubles as a new S2 in a new version of the very same topology with another S1 over another barred subject pointing to the new S2. And then that in turn gets encompassed by a new version of the exact same topology. And we talked about this as the logic of the big other. The big other as a counting mechanism, as what Alain Badiou would call the state, as um, a barred big other ever in search of containment and ever producing something which drops out of every effort to contain, thereby renewing its operation as a container. And the question, among others, that we asked here is, where does obj-a fit in, this little a? And the answer that we got early on probably chapter four, I'd say, in seminar 16, is that this obj-a is an index of the repetitive necessity, an algebraic term that we use to symbolize these concentric rectangles. It's an index of that repetitive necessity that the big other enacts when it seeks to encompass the next round of S1s and S2s. We went over this before, so we won't spend much time with it. But I want to note here that in the middle of seminar 16, <clears throat> there's a lot going on, but it seems to me the primary stake here is again, what is the function of obj-a? And we have a couple of different operations happening here. But remember where we started, and that'll help us get a sense of where we're headed here in the middle section of seminar uh, 16. <clears throat> Our primary thesis which led to a diagram which gave us this repetitive topology and gave us an understanding of obj-a as this kind of index of the necessary repetition that the big other enacts is important here. A signifier is what represents a subject to another signifier. And we've got the diagram all mapped out. Now here in chapter 16, where we find ourselves of seminar 16, we have a very similar operation occurring here. Check out pages two to three of the translation that we're working with here. What we see is a transition from our primary thesis, the signifier is what represents a subject to another signifier, to this repetitive topology, to an understanding of obj-a, not so much as the index of the repetitive necessity we see being played out, but as a kind of residue something left behind with each of the big other's progressive encompassments. 
Now you could see this at the level of the lines, of the arrows, of the bars that recur throughout this diagram that we've been developing, all repeating, all iterative, and all operating again at the level of that encompassing structural logic of the barred other. But the important part here is that Lacan is now shifting from a conversation about objet A, where it's not just the index of this repetitive necessity, but a residue or a trace that's left over by this process. And in many cases, still caught up in the center of it, like sand in the gears of a machine. Check out page two of chapter 16. The first paragraph about sublimation and the work of art and commercial value we read. Notice how immediately then Lacan flips the page and turns to a different topic, another version of objet A. Page 2, chapter 16 of Seminar 16. What makes objet A something that can function as equivalent to enjoyment is a topological structure. And here I would suggest we should think about the topological structure that we've developed of an S1 over a barred S pointing to an S2 being encompassed by another version of the exact same topology. It is very precisely the measure that, simply by taking the function through which the subject is only grounded, is only introduced as an effect of the signifier, and by referring ourselves to the schema that I repeated a hundred times before you, since the beginning of the year, of the signifier, here S1, as representative of the subject for another signifier, here S2, that of its nature, again, is other. This means that what represents it, namely the subject, can only posit it as before this other, here the other signifier, S2. This necessitates the repetition of the relationship of this S1 to the big other as a locus of other signifiers in a relationship that leaves intact the locus which is not to be taken as a part, but in conformity with everything that is stated about the function of the set as leaving the element itself as a potential set, makes this residue even though it is distinct under the function of the a, little a, equal to the weight of the big other in its totality. The key word here is, first and foremost, repetition, which we've talked a lot about, and we've talked about how repetition is a retroactive operation in Lacan's work. Read this paragraph carefully around the relationship between barred subject, S1, and S2, and what he's doing here with repetition. Another key word here, though, is residue. This residue that he identifies with the function of objet A. Let's consider this. It is insofar as it is here a place that we can designate by a term connecting the interior to radical exteriority. It is insofar as the objet A is extimate there's that term again. Lacan's had it for years, but he's queuing it up again here. And purely in the relationship set up by the establishment of the subject as an effect of the signifier, as determining by itself in the field of the big other, this structure in which it is easy for us to see the kinship 
the variations in what is organized from any edge structure, and so on and so forth. So OBJA is extimate because it's indexical of an iterative set of elements, S1, barred subject, that keeps getting encompassed and excluded, but with each exclusion that generates a new encompassment, that exclusion gets internalized. And OBJA is the residue left from this process. So the big other tries to encompass, it leaves something out, and then tries to encompass that. An exteriority becomes the basis for an interiority. It becomes folded back in to the next iteration of the big other's progressive encompassment. And OBJA is the residue left behind by this process, which is why he wants to identify its function with that of extimacy here in chapter 16, something that is external but also internal, intimate too. OBJA is an extimate residue, an inner limit that starts popping here in seminar 16. Here's the question. Where exactly does this OBJA reside? What space does it occupy in the field known as the big other, in the experience and the operation of the barred other? Check out page six, a few pages past where we were just reading in chapter 16 here. Absolutely amazing. A friend of mine gave me the paper on which I printed this seminar for us to read because at this point in the game, we do not have a proper English translation of this thing. Um, Bruce's is on its way, but we're a little bit ahead of that. Anyway, I got this stack of paper and uh, printed some stuff out on it. Oddly enough, the sheets of paper are smaller than usual, so I don't know where these things come from. They're also kind of off-white. I've never seen pages of this color. Very grateful to my friend for the paper. Look what I found in the middle of this stack of paper on the back. Is that a tail? Or is this animal having an incredibly important experience? Let's see where we go with this if anywhere, as we get to page six. I have no idea what kind of animal this is. And in fact, if you take a look at this thing again, look at the top, look at these eyes. But again, the key point here is that tail, is that a tail? Is this an animal with a low tail? Or is this an animal that is having a serious digestive issue, a tailless animal that's being evacuated in some sense? I don't know, I just found this on the back of the sheet. Um, call it real, call it what you will. Here we are, though, on page six, which has typing on the front. On the back, we have this animal. I'll let you connect those dots. Check out the middle of page six on this topic of where exactly OBJA as a residue uh, takes shape. Where does it appear? In order to answer that question, Lacan tells us a little something needs to be known about the big other and the space that it occupies. The locus of the other as evacuated of enjoyment. There's that emphasis again on the evacuation of enjoyment. is not simply a cleared place, a burned circle of what is not simply this big other. 
this place open to the interplay of roles, this something structured of itself from the signifying incidents. It is very precisely what introduces into it this lack, this bar, this gap, this hole that can be distinguished by the title of objet a. So here's a way to think about this. The big other, not the barred other, but the big other, think of it as a complete circle, a complete sphere. The barred other is that circle, but with a hole punched through it. And this hole is the space where jouissance has been evacuated, cut out, punched out, a loss of jouissance at the level of the big other, this terrain that's been cleared of jouissance, it leaves a gap, an opening, or as we would call it, a lack. Now think back to how we understand the process of prohibition vis-a-vis -vis the barred subject. You have the minus V of castration, known as loss, and the resulting lack, symbolized by objet A. You have the incision or the cut that takes something, and then you have the wound or the opening that is left behind. That's very similar to what's happening here. Jouissance is what is cut out. Enjoyment is what is excised from the big other. And what's left is this hole, this gap, this opening. And what Lacan's telling us here is that we title that hole objet A. This very much comports with the distinction that we draw in this series between loss and lack. Lack corresponds to objet A. It names or identifies or indexes an opening left behind by a process of excision known as um, minus phi or the castrative logic. So if you want to think about this in a very clear way, the barred other equals big A minus J. If you want like a little mathematical formula here, the barred other equals the big other minus jouissance. The barred other equals the big other minus jouissance. And objet A is the signifier or the symbol that we use to name the resulting gap or opening or lack that emerges in the field of the big other. Objet A names this hollow, and yet at the same time, and this is where things get a little odd, it's also something that rattles around inside of this hollow and can be appropriated as an object for the drive, be it a perverse drive, which is very much the topic here in seminar uh, 16, chapter 16, um, or a neurotic drive, which is where he starts to turn in the latter half of chapter 16 here. But this marks a kind of elusive aspect of objet A. In fact, we even call it objet A, object little a. So which is it? Is little a an opening, a lack, a space in which nothing appears, or is it an object? Is it something? Now, obviously, we know, and we've worked out in previous series, especially around the topic of anxiety, which is not without its object, that the lack that 
object ah designates is a special kind of object, an enigmatic object. The same way that psychoanalysis as a broad form of inquiry takes nothing, the no thing, as an object. The same way in that silly joke that you hear me repeat about having everything packed in the car, which means you have to stop and turn around because nothing has been left out. Nothing has been left behind. And the way that Lacan takes that nothing and makes it into an object to be studied. Objet A suffers the exact same logic. It's a something which is nothing. A nothing which has been turned into something. The same way that zero as a number can be studied. It signals nothing. But at the same time, that signal is itself something that can be analyzed. And right now, what Lacan is doing, and part of the dilemma, I think, of the middle chapters of Seminar 16, is that when he says objet a, when he says little a, when he says the function of object little a, he's at once thinking of it as an opening and as a thing, as an object. And it depends on how it's taken up. So the work ahead of us is to try and separate these two and try and iron out once again, as we've done in previous series, where exactly we want to understand this little a. Right now, though, what we have is it simultaneously designates the hollow. It names the lack and the formation known as the barred other. But at the same time, as we're going to see, it's also an object that rattles around in that lack. Let's take a second, see what we can make of this. You've often heard me say that the fundamental fantasy is that the big other exists, that wholeness can be attained. Um, it's come up in the discussions from this series that maybe this would be a fundamental fantasy um, uniquely suited to obsessives. And that there might be, for instance, a hysteric fundamental fantasy that would be quite different. I'm not entirely willing to go there. I still believe reading, especially this chapter in Seminar 16, that the fundamental fantasy is fundamentally that the other exists. And Lacan here draws that out. Not so much at the level of neurosis, although that's a little present here as well. And he doesn't make a distinction between the subcategories of neurosis. He draws this out at the level of perversion. In fact, what I would say is that chapter 16 of Seminar 16 is a terrific summary of what Lacan is doing with perversion, particularly around the drive. The action begins on page 7, where Lacan just spells it out. The pervert is the one who devotes himself to filling this hole in the other. So the barred other equals the big other minus jouissance, you heard me say. The result is that the barred other has a hole in it, a space or a lack, a void that has been opened up by the excision of jouissance. The pervert, according to Lacan, is someone who tries to help the big other, notably its avatars, fill in this hole. That up to a certain point, to give here the colors that give the relief to things, I would say that he is in favor of the other existing, that he is a defender of the faith. 
faith in this case that the big other exists. But you also have to hear this in terms of religion. The big other in the West is not just capital. The big other is God. The other big C, Christianity in the West, gives us a version of the big other as omniscient, as omnipotent, as whole, as complete, as everything, as universalized. And so when Lacan says the pervert doesn't just want to fill in the whole in the other and thus render it whole, complete, and so forth, but that he has faith, the pervert, that he can do this. He's a defender of the faith. You have to hear this also in terms of religiosity. And you have to also know that the problem with God in the West is not that he's dead, as Nietzsche said, and it's not that he's dead and doesn't know it, as you get from the Freud to Lacan tradition. The problem with God is that he doesn't go to church. God doesn't go to church. God doesn't have anyone to pray to. There is no God of God in the Christian tradition the tradition in the West alongside capitalism that props up so much of what we count as society. The problem with God is he ain't got a God. The same is true of the big other, right? The difference between the barred subject and the barred other is that the barred other lacks a relationship to a barred other, to a big other, like the one that each of us as barred subject suffers through. You've heard us work through this. Now what we're working at is a parallel, very explicit here in chapter 16, between the big other and God. And this hint at it with the defender of the faith, as the pervert who has faith that the big other can be made to exist, is important right along these lines. Perversion here, in other words, is dedicated to filling in the whole in the other that is left behind by the evacuation of jouissance. And this resulting big other is not unlike that of the Christian God. Check out the next sentence. Moreover, in looking more closely at the observations in this light that makes the pervert a singular auxiliary of God. Let's read on and see what we can make of this stuff. You often hear that phrase from me, see what we can make, let's see where we go from here. I can't emphasize this enough. I'm reading these materials along with you. I haven't read this seminar and I'm now showing up to pronounce what they're all about. I'm actively reading these materials, generating these commentaries live, or at least live at the time of the recording that you're now watching, and reading this stuff with you. So yesterday, as I was reading, Page 8, I saw more evidence of this understanding of perversion. It is the enjoyment of the big other that the exhibitionist watches over. It's interesting here. The big other is barred because jouissance, enjoyment, has been evacuated from it. And this is precisely what the pervert hopes to provide the big other with, namely, enjoyment. What was taken from the big other rendering it barred in this formula Lacan's giving us here, the pervert, be it exhibitionist, be it voyeur, be it sadomasochist, all are discussed here in chapter 16, tries to give it back. 
and serves as a particular support, a supplement, a supply. Recall our second diagram, or our first diagram, I should say, for the other that this partner gives, that the pervert hopes to give, to provide the big other with a support or a supply. It is in this field, the field of the big other, qua deserted by enjoyment, that the exhibitionistic act is posited to give rise there to a look, which is not symmetrical to what the voyeur is up to. The point here is that perversion is once again, regardless of what submodality we're, we're discussing, is dedicated to bringing, returning to the barred other, the jouissance that was taken from it. Then we're on to the sadomasochistic drive. Really good stuff on page 10 with regard to perversion and around enjoyment, which centrally is the topic here. Don't get it twisted. We are talking about enjoyment. It is enough to have worked with an exhibitionist to see that one understands nothing about what in appearance, I will not say, makes him enjoy himself, since he does not enjoy himself. But check it out. Look at how Lacan puts a twist on this. And yet he enjoys himself all the same. And on a single condition of taking the step that I have just said, namely, that the enjoyment that is at stake is that of the big other. Naturally, there is a gap. You are not crusaders. You do not consecrate yourself to ensuring that the big other, namely something or other blind and perhaps dead, should enjoy. But the exhibitionist, for his part, is interested in that. It is in that way that he is a defender of the faith. Here again, you see the Christian undertones popping up here. You are not crusaders. You do not consecrate yourself. And then we're dealing with an other that is blind and perhaps dead. Think about Nietzsche to Freud to Lacan on God being dead and not knowing it. And here again, an exhibitionist as pervert is a defender of the faith. And to reiterate, this is the same faith that is baked into every fundamental fantasy that the big other exists. Or because here we're talking about faith, that it can be made to exist. The barred other may be what exists at present. The fantasy of the pervert is that that barred other can be repaired, rehole, refilled, um, have its hollow filled with jouissance, have jouissance return to it. And the pervert is what brings that to the big other. We could go on in this direction, as Lacan certainly does. That is why, to catch up, I let myself go in speaking about crusaders. To believe in the big other, the cross, the French words linking up like that, and so on and so forth. Here you see, to believe in the big other, the cross, read God in the sense of omniscience, omnipotence, and the like. We know what God lacks. God lacks a God like the one he asks us to obey. And again, that's the problem. It's not that God is dead. It's not that he don't know it. 
The problem is that God don't pray. God can't pray. God can't worship. There is no church for God to attend. There ain't no God of God. There is no other of the other. The question in many ways with perversion is, with what does the pervert aim to fill in the hollow that constitutes the barred other? What are you going to fill it in? With your look? With their look? With a voice? This is part of what we get to when we arrive at page 12 in a terrific middle chapter, convoluted in some ways, but also terrific middle chapter here in Seminar 16, page 12. What is at stake is the voice. And here he's talking about sadomasochistic forms of perversion. This voice that he then goes on to link up with Objah, there's the hole, and then he's right back in the middle of the page to the vestibular system, or the semicircular canals, he says, I already gave you a glimpse of this a fortnight ago. So here, think back to the end of chapter 14, when he's talking about one of these primitive animals, this tiny shrimp, and talking about the oral cavity of this primitive animal. And here he wants to add another animal to the list and play on the mythical echoes. You can read all this on your own. What matters for us is what Lacan then does at the bottom of page 12, when he gets back to the hollow. Check this out. Let it not distract us from the fact that the animal, when at each molting it is stripped of all the outside of its systems, is obliged and with good reason because otherwise he would not be able to move in this way to set up, here we go, in the hollow opened up at his animal level on the outside in the hollow of what is nothing less than an ear, some little grains of sand, so that they tickle it in there. And now we get to another function of Oja. Oja doesn't just name the hollow. It doesn't just signal the lack or circumscribe the opening. It is also like a little piece of sand that can get stuck in someone's ear, in someone's vestibular system. Sand is like an object inside the hollow that tickles it from the inside. And you have to think about this now. You have the barred other that's been hollowed out and evacuated of jouissance, which leaves a hollow or an opening. We simultaneously use little a to designate that opening. Here, Lacan is giving us the other function of object, little a, namely as an object. It's also something that rattles around in that hollow. It's something the pervert hopes is big enough to fill the hollow, but it's something that the analyst can look at and see how it just rattles around instead. The pervert's fundamental fantasy that they can fill in the hollow in the barred other and thus transform the barred other into the big other is like every fundamental fantasy, just that, a fantasy. No matter what you put in that hole, it's never big enough to fill it. 
everything you put in there is like a grain of sand put into someone's oral cavity, an opening in which the sand rattles around. And here's that verb again, tickling this opening from the inside. This is an important part of the function, what Lacan here calls the function of objet A. It doesn't just name the hollow, it can also serve as something that rattles around inside it. It's almost like Lacan should have chosen another term, another algebraic symbol to describe these two different functions. Why he does not, we can discuss. But here it is. Objet A is an object and an opening. It's an opening that can be transformed into an object of inquiry. And it's an object that when looked at alongside those of modern science doesn't look like much of an object at all. As small, perhaps, and even as insignificant, perhaps, as the modern scientist might regard a grain of sand. We should probably take a second and just recall where things got weird. Things got weird in chapter 14. Chapter 14 is in part weird because Lacan starts kicking around a term there that he hadn't used in a very long time, a decade even, das Ding, the thing. It comes up again at the end of 14 where things are especially odd, giving us many dots we need to connect. The relationship of sublimation to enjoyment, he tells us, since this is what is in question in so far as it is sexual enjoyment, can only be explained by literally what I will call the anatomy of a vacuole. The vacuole then gives way to the auditory apparatus, the auditory organ, the vestibule of a tiny shrimp that has an otolith, a little rock or something inside the opening of the ear. And it's fun, Lacan says, as you'll recall, to fuck with that. You take out the otolith and you put a piece of iron in there. And then you get some magnets and make the iron apparently dance around. And this gives him enjoyment, Lacan says. Clearly this is important stuff. I'm returning to it because I want it to be top of mind as we take our next step forward. This is what I want to indicate to you as an introduction to next time. You'll recall Lacan saying at the end of chapter 14. It is the objet a, this object little a, that plays this role with respect to the vacuole. In other words, it's what tickles das Ding from the inside. And there you are, he says. This is what constitutes the essential merit of everything that is called a work of art. So on the one hand, we've got several images popping here. There's that of a vacuole. And if you think in terms of like cellular biology, think in terms of a plant cell, you have a plant cell with many parts. A vacuole is a storage compartment inside a plant cell that would have things in it. And then we get this auditory apparatus of a tiny shrimp, an opening again in which sand or iron or some other thing can get in there and move around. And then we have this crucial verb, tickling, the idea that this thing inside the opening rattles around and tickles it. Tickles das ding from the inside. So the opening here as a kind of das ding. What does that mean? And then he connects that to a work of art. It's a lot of imagery going on here. A lot of needles that I think we need to thread. 
in order to take our next step forward. Now, as in most things involving Lacanian psychoanalysis, in order to take big step forwards, you oftentimes have to take several steps back. And here, for our purposes, that would be a step back well around a decade to Seminar 7. Let's first start with this topic of sublimation, dusting, and the work of art. Now, we've already done a series on Seminar 7. I'm not going to spend much time with this, um, but I do want to have it top of mind for everyone. In Seminar 7, the emptiness, the whole in the barred other, is figured around the symbolic. Seminar 7 is also interested in a hole or an opening or a void in the symbolic. <clears throat> the way that signifiers always introduce and themselves are hold elements. The macaroni noodle, think about it that way. Um, big other, symbolic, call it what you will. The important thing here is that that opening is called Das Ding. Now, Khan has a lot to say about Das Ding in Seminar 7. The key point for us is to focus on what, the, what it means relative to the work of art. And he says that the work of art is always to some extent an encircling of the thing. The work of art always involves encircling the thing, at least to some extent. And what I would suggest is that in Seminar 7, this is what Lacan means by sublimation. He's sticking pretty close to Freud here, as he's also doing here in 16, which is why I bring it up. Sublimation is this process of encircling that yields a work of art and any other commodity with what Lacan here calls commercial value in Seminar 16. So in 7, Lacan accesses this by way of Heidegger's image of the vase. And if you've read Heidegger on the vase, it's second only to his stuff on candles. Terrific business about how in creating a vase, you can open up a space to be filled. And emptiness is created at the level of the vase, at the level of this vascular structure. I mean, we see it elsewhere too, whenever anybody places a jar upon a hill in Tennessee. There's a space or a void or a hole that's opened up at the level of that container, <clears throat> a hole that can be filled, if you will. Um, here, what you see is the work of art at the level of a vase, but really any type of encircling of emptiness that would serve here as um, the work of art. But it could be also any commodity as well. This is important stuff for us to hold in mind. So you have the thing, which is an emptiness or an opening in the symbolic here we're talking about it as the result of a subtraction of jouissance from the big other. Remember, bard A equals A minus J in the formula that we were toying with last time. In Seminar 7, this opening is called Das Ding, and the work of art is something that encircles Das Ding, encases it in something beautiful, shiny, to be purchased, to be sold. And it doesn't just have to be a fancy painting at a gallery. It can be a piece of candy at the corner store. Sublimation is the process by which a commodity is made of Das Ding by encircling it, by encompassing it, by wrapping up Das Ding in something shiny, if you will, something to be bought and sold. So on the one hand in Seminar 7, you get this understanding of 
an ordinary object elevated to the dignity of the thing as a definition of sublimation. But I would suggest, and you've heard this from me before, that we also see this process as a lowering or a denigration of Das Ding to the level of an ordinary object. Again, be it a piece of candy or a fine work of art. The point is that it's a commodity, the importance of which is determined by what Lacan in Seminar 16 calls its commercial value. And I would suggest that that is a denigration of Das Ding, an objectification, a reification of Das Ding, if you will. In our algebra, the way that we have symbolized that is with the shift from little a, objet a, to little i, little a, which is usually reserved, as you know, for specular images, for ideal egos, things that appear whole and promise wholeness to the extent that we can identify with them. I'm also applying that here to commodities as they participate in the production of surplus jouissance. Be they store candies or expensive works of art, little i, little a is the symbol that I'm using to designate those commodities. And what I want to suggest is that when those commodities become objects of the drive, the production is not real enjoyment, but surplus enjoyment. All right, at this point, things are starting to get a little complicated. So in our previous formulations, we've got the barred other equals the big other minus jouissance. The barred other is the other evacuated of jouissance that leaves in its place a hollow. And we've said that objet a, this little a, simultaneously names this hollow and can also rattle around inside it. It is simultaneously the symbol of an opening and an object that can participate in that opening, that can rattle around in it like a grain of sand, like an autolith and the like. We now also have this little i, little a, the commodity, as it encompasses Das Ding, as it encompasses this hollow. And the question is, can we stitch all this together in a way that makes us um, understand a little better than we have so far what Lacan is up to here at the level of um, surplus enjoyment? And I think one way we can start doing this is to take a look at some of the images, again, that he's been using in these middle chapters. So in chapter 14, we again had the vacuole. And you heard me liken this to a plant cell. So you have a cell, and there's a nucleus, got all kinds of other shit in there, but there's a vacuole, which is like a storage tank in which things can be put. So if you think of, in the, in the case of the example of the barred other here, the barred other is the cell. It's a plant cell. And then inside it is something smaller, a vacuole, if you will. And inside that vacuole, there can be stuff, little A's rattling around. That's a pretty good image. We could make something of that. The auditory organ of the tiny shrimp. That's another image he has. You have an ear that serves as a vestibule, and there's a little rock in there, and you can remove the rock, and you can replace it with a piece of iron and fuck around with magnets, and you can move things around in this opening. That's pretty useful, too. It gives us that understanding of OBJA as the opening and also the small object in there that rattles around. I don't think, though, that this allows us to really make sense of what he does when he adds Das Ding 
to the conversation, as he does at the basis at the, at the end of chapter 14. Something that tickles Das Ding from the inside. Now, Das Ding, we know in Seminar 7, is the whole, this emptiness, this void in the symbolic. It's a good word that he's bringing up here in 16 to designate this cleared, burnt out whole space in the big other where jouissance has been evacuated. But I don't think that these images of vacuole and auditory organ are as helpful as the one he gives us in chapter 15. So, so far we have finished a lecture on 13 and 14. And then we've been talking a little bit about chapter 16 and with perversion. And now we're at that middle chapter, chapter 15. This is the one again where Lacan shows up and he's sick. He's got the fever. He's got all this stuff going on, but things get really good 11 pages in. Again, on the topic of sublimation, again, on the topic of the drive, again, on the topic of objea, but notice the new image that he adds. Another phase of sublimation that I began the last time, the one that is at the level of the drive, and which, alas, concerns us much more, to which I gave the first prototype in the shape of the function of the bell, something round with a little thing, a little A object, which is strongly shaken inside. Let us use, then, before this comes on the scene, more agreeable forms. A bell. The French here is grelo, and this is not just a regular bell. This is not a bell that ding, 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 with a clapper in the middle that swings around. A grelo is like a small bell. It's a sleigh bell. It's round, looks kind of like an acorn, has some slits in the bottom of it, and then there's something inside that rattles around, you can shake this bell, and it produces a shimmery, shiny sound. This is interesting here. So let me tell you the three parts of a bell in this sense, in the sense of a grillo. A bell of this sort has a shiny exterior, some slits in that, a little piece of shit, a rock, a bean, some piece of hard fab item in the middle, and then space between the rock in the middle and the shiny exterior, such that when you shake the bell, the little rock rattles around in there. So effectively, you have these three components, the shiny exterior, the shit inside that rattles around, and then the space between the shit and the shiny that allows for the production of sound as the shit hits the inner wall of the shiny. And what I want to suggest is that this captures better than the other images what Lacan is here doing with sublimation, the thing, and these two understandings of obja, one as opening or space, and the other as object or thing. This little bell is shiny on the outside, full of shit and space on the inside, and this is a new image for Lacan, and I would suggest the best way to understand this one is as the bookend of what he gives us in Seminar 8 on the transference. Seminar 8 focuses on the symposium, where Alcibiades likens Socrates 
to an old gnarly box with something really glorious and shiny and amazing and a galma inside. The bell that Lacan is giving us in 16 here is an inversion of this. Instead of the shitty box with something shiny inside that you get when Alcibiades talks about Socrates and the agalma that becomes part of Lacan's early thinking of objea, now what you have is a shiny exterior that has a piece of shit inside. That's what we see at the level of the grelo. We're not talking about the vacuole. We're not talking about the auditory organ with a rock or a piece of sand in there. The tiny shrimp is now gone. Now we're thinking about sleigh bells. This image in chapter 15, seminar 16, is a terrific one to understand alongside that image of Socrates again. Shitty exterior, shiny interior. Now we have a shiny exterior and a shitty interior, coupled also with space, because the bell only works insofar as there is space between the shitty interior part that rattles and the shiny exterior part that sounds off when the rattling shit hits the side. This is important to note. I would also just add that it's not irrelevant, it seems to me here, that the type of bell that Lacan has in mind here is the same kind of bell that farmers hang from livestock. The same type of bell that you would put around a cow. The same type of bell that you would put around the ankle of a goat. I'm from the Midwest in the United States. There are goats and cows everywhere. And a lot of times they are marked with bells, things that sound off. The types of bells, the shiny ones with shit on the inside, hear me now, are what owners tie around livestock to keep track of them. If you've got ears to hear what we're saying, I am talking about commodities here. I am talking about surplus enjoyment. And that's exactly where we're headed here. What if, instead of focusing on the shiny exterior of this little bell, we focused on the shit inside and the space, the gap or the opening or the emptiness between this shit interior element and its shiny shell? If so, what I would suggest is here we would be moving away from little i, little a, at the level of the shiny commodity, the exterior of the bell, and into it, into the space that is opened up by the formation of the bell, the same way that a vase opens up a vascular space, an emptiness known as das Ding, but also towards an understanding of obja as something little, apparently insignificant and worthless, that rattles around inside. Here what you get is something inside the commodity that is a two-fold entity. Inside the commodity, here the shiny bell, you have the piece of shit that rattles and the space through which it moves in order to make that bell sing. This is what Lacan means when he says that obja tickles from the inside. It is tickling this commodity from the inside as it rattles around in there. And I would suggest that this allows us to shift from drive satisfaction at the level of surplus enjoyment to drive satisfaction to what I would call real enjoyment. 
And back to where we started all this, which was this idea that there were two drives popping here, two aspects of the drive. It's really something for us to try and wrap our heads around next, especially now that we've got the image of the Grelo in front of us. So the notions of the drive that we've been working with here, these aspects, these applications of the drive, I said we're stretching from seminar 11 to seminar 16. And what I would suggest here is that you got, on the one hand, in seminar 11 and the attending essays from this period, an understanding of the drive that allows for real satisfaction, real enjoyment. And in our lectures on the drive, I describe this as a desublimatory process. Doesn't mean you step outside the field of castration. Don't forget, the mathem of the drive shows you that the drive exists on the side of castration, not jouissance in the graph of desire. What I also said in those lectures on the drive coming out of seminar 11, and then in the little mini series we did on the drive, is that the object of the drive is really in fact an opening. Objea at the level of the drive as it emerges from seminar 11 is an opening. It's very closely aligned with the source or the erogenous zone that you might have popping at the level of the drive. Obja designates an opening and also is connected to a lost object, but more importantly, our focus was on that opening. This other aspect of the drive that we are now working with in seminar 16 and that I am looping back through Lacan's work on sublimation, Das Ding, and the drive in seminar 7 shows us not a drive that is used to produce real enjoyment but a drive that is used to produce surplus enjoyment, and not by way of desublimation in the field of castration, but by sublimating in the field of capitalism, also its own field of castration, of course. Here, though, the emphasis is not on obja as opening or lost object. It is on little i, little a as shiny, complete, alluring, promising to plug one's whole object. We're talking about commodities here. Instead of getting off on the openings at the level of your body, be it your mouth, your anus, your eyes, your ears, whatever, now what you get off on is the shiny object that you can put inside each cavity. The shiny little I, little A, that is its own complete commodity, as round as a grillo that you can then put inside your own opening and fill that void. Think about the connection here between neurotic consumer consumption and the pervert's wish to fill the void in the big other. Perhaps the primary difference here is that while the pervert tries to fill the other's void, the neurotic at the level of consumer capitalism is looking for commodities to fill their own void and thus would have it themselves a perverse fantasy. But this lines up with two different aspects of the drive. And in seminar 16, Lacan is using drive, sublimation and dosting, not unlike how he's using it in seminar seven. The talk of the work of art that you see in 16 also is popping in seminar seven. Now you'll note the work of art considered in seminar seven is Holbein's ambassador's painting, 
which we've talked about in previous series. It comes up a lot in Lacan's work, especially in the 60s. It's this painting of the two traitors, I don't know, wealthy bearded men, hello, uh, standing between on either side of a cart full of shit, you know, you know, perils of modern science and all the stuff that their wealth can buy. And then there's this anamorphosis in the middle where a skull, if you can look at it, is three-dimensionally kind of popping out of the center. A symbol of vanitas, a symbol of death that no matter how much fancy shit you buy, you're still going to die in the end. Death is always there, vanitas, right? Um, here you have something that leaps out, some thing that looks like, according to Lacan, a couple of scrambled eggs that is rattling around that picture. That's not too different from what we're doing here at the level of this little sleigh bell that has a piece of shit rattling around inside it. Inside the commodity is das Ding, the thing that has been encircled, whether your commodity is a piece of candy or a work of art or a little bell, but also this other thing, not just the das Ding that gives way to the obja that is the definition of opening as lack. And forgive me for moving fast here, but we've been through a lot of this. But also this little other understanding of obja as a piece of shit, a little object, a little rock, a pea, whatever it is that you put inside sleigh bells to make them jingle that rattles around in there. Our attention as consumers is on the shininess of the bell, but also on the shimmer sound that is produced when the piece of shit slams against its inner wall. I think all of this is really quite relevant. Lacan has described this little object rattling around as a piece of sand. We've talked about it as something insignificant, insufficient, of course, to fill out the bell, Notice that as well. The obja as object, little a, is too small to fill out the bell. And if it were big enough to fill out the bell, the bell would cease to operate and as a commodity would no longer interest us. It's worth holding all this in mind. So you've got these three elements. There's the shell again. There's the piece of shit inside, and then there's the empty space between the piece of shit and the inner wall of the shell that allows for the production of sound. I'm reviewing this so we can have it in front of us as we start thinking about what this allows us to do with the drive. It's tempting to think about other analogs to other types of bells, especially the very standard notion of a bell that would have, note this, a pretty interesting anatomy. Bells of the traditional sort, think the Liberty Bell, think a church bell, they have heads, shoulders, waists, lips. They also have mouths. And I would also note just that's as you move down the anatomy of a bell. It starts with head, then shoulder, then waist. You can look it up. You can check this out. But notice the lip and the mouth of the bell are not located at the top. They're located at the bottom. So which lip and mouth are we really talking about here? It's the lower lip and the mouth that the anatomy of the human so well knows as an anus that you see happening. What then do you think of when you think of the clappert, 
the thing that swings in the bell from side to side using gravity to make it ding the sides, the clappert? What is this thing? Well, let me ask you, what comes out of the mouth in the lower portion of the human form? What comes out of the lips known as the anus? This clappert is a piece of shit, not unlike the little pea inside the grillo that's rattling around and making sound. I bring up this other possible bell image because I want you to think about this also in terms of the standard diagram of the drive that you get from seminar 11. You have an opening, right? And then the aim of the drive comes out, loops around OBJA, and then returns to its source. The metaphor Lacan is using in seminar 11 is that of archery. The archer's arrow shoots and then returns back to its source. And he does some really great work there with Heraclitus too, which we covered in our series on seminar 11. Here the image is of a bell, but let me just encourage you to do this. Take the standard diagram of the drive, turn it upside down, and ask yourself to what extent the aim of the drive forms the clappered inside a bell, and to what extent the source of the drive serves as the lips of the bell that establishes the mouth or the opening. And now you know what object A is in the field of the drive. It's the piece of shit that pops out of the lips of the mouth and the lower portion of the anatomy of you, dear bell, and me as well. I think this is the best way to understand what Lacan is here doing with a tickling that occurs inside Dasting. Don't stick too close to what he's doing with Dasting. It's the tickling part that matters here. Objea is the opening or the space inside the bell and the little piece of shit that tickles its inner walls. And it's this dynamic relation, this interchange between object and opening, abject entity and the emptiness in which it rattles that puts us on the trail of a different type of drive satisfaction than surplus drive satisfaction. What we're looking for here, in other words, is a way to back out of consumer culture and back into an understanding of the drive as it lends itself to the production of real enjoyment, not at the level of consumption, but at the level of one's own body, which is the only type of enjoyment there's ever been. Ultimately, why surplus enjoyment lets us down is that all the little crumbs and bits and pieces, the little bells and the fucking vacuoles that form consumer culture are disappointing. They're disappointing because we lose sight of the shit that enables the shiny to shimmer when we shake it. Maybe what we lose sight of, in fact, is the bell itself as we catch an image of ourselves in its reflection. Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Con. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music.